This is Polyoptics. Shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS, Politics of the United States. This week, the view from the top, what it means to be White House Chief of Staff. We're joined for an extremely rare interview with Joshua Bolton. He served President George W. Bush and joins us today for a candid briefing on the job, the pressures, and how polyoptics plays a major role in presidential communications. Then, Prohibition, the amazing new documentary film airing Sunday night on PBS. We speak with the film's producer and director, Lynn Novick, the silent partner alongside Ken Burns, until now. But first, I'm joined by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. And Josh, of course, was production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role I played in the George W. Bush White House. Josh, it's great to have you here. Great to be with you, Adam. Uh, Another week in polyoptics, uh, another rise and fall uh, in the media spotlight. I mean, last week when I was here with Don Baer, we were sort of extolling at least the bravado and boldness of Governor Rick Perry bringing his message to New York and the United Nations and sort of sticking it right to President Obama in the midst of the UN General Assembly on the topic of Israel. And then Governor Perry sort of ran into his own buzzsaw in Florida. Yeah, Governor Perry's been having a rough go. He was the guy that everyone thought was going to come in and change the landscape, but he has not proven as adept at handling a national campaign uh, as one would have expected. Yeah, so the next few weeks are going to be telling. I don't. He's going to have more debates, but he may not have the opportunity to redefine himself uh, based on uh, the the performances he's had so far. How does and the saying go? You never get a second chance to make a first impression. Now, in terms of first impressions, though, Adam, I, I think Governor Chris Christie, if he's at all inclined to run, has set himself up pretty well at the Reagan Library. Oh, I think he did too. There's no doubt about it. He's a compelling figure. Uh, He's got a lot of baggage that he's carrying with him, no pun intended. Uh, But ultimately, I think he said it enough. He's not going to run, and this is all speculation and the desire of political journalists to have a new narrative. Um, You know, I said this the other day. I was just overwhelmed with a television first of this week. Uh, Political reporter Mark Halpin, who's been a part of uh, Polyoptics here before, taking to the Wi-Fi using Skype to do a live television interview aboard a Delta flight across the country in the wee morning hours. Is this more than just a first, or was this just kind of funny? Well, I mean, leave it to Halpern uh, and uh, and MSNBC to try this. I mean, if, you, if you're using the Delta uh, Wi-Fi setup and you've got an iPad or another device, what's to prevent you from ducking into, as Halpern said, the quiet room somewhere <laughs> over the continent? the laboratory. <laughs> I mean, Willie Geist has a show on from 5.30 to 6 in the morning. It's about the time that they start their initial descent into Kennedy on the red eye from LAX. And why not go into the laboratory for a, a, about a five-minute uh, give and take on what happened out in Simi Valley. I think it's interesting, if only because, while it may be a live television first, this kind of technology is what we, when I was in the White House, were experimenting with and bringing the President of the United States to the American people uh, in an in-flight uh, live way. And so people have been thinking about it, but here we are at Polyoptics, where firsts and innovation are the name of the game. Yeah, I just wish that I got to see George W. Bush uh, videoing in from the Air Force One lab. Well, he wouldn't have needed to be in the lab. He had his own studio up front in the plane. But uh, someone who served him incredibly well, Josh, is our lead guest today. That's right, Joshua Bolton, President Bush's second chief of staff and a uh, long-serving public servant and a a great person to get to know. We are joined now by a very special guest here in Polyoptics, Joshua Bolton, who was the 22nd White House chief of staff serving President George W. Bush uh, from April of 2006 until the very last day of the uh, Bush administration. Uh, I am very proud to say that I worked uh, for Mr. Bolton, and uh, welcome to Polyoptics. Adam, thank you for having me. 
Josh King and I uh, have been doing this type of discussion, never having had the opportunity to speak with uh, a former administration official, let alone a chief of staff, someone so high-ranking. So we're excited to have you today. But you served in the Bush administration in a number of different places and very important policy places as the director of the Office of Management and Budget. Uh, you served uh, in the campaign as a policy director, and prior to that, you were involved in the H.W. Bush administration as a deputy assistant. Um, your federal service, was it uh, something that uh, has been the, the highlight of your career? I know you spent some time in the private sector as well. Um, sure, but but before we talk about me, let's talk about you for a second, Okay, um, because um, I was enormously privileged to serve in the entire eight years of the Bush administration. And the best part of it was serving with just fabulous folks like Adam Belmar. Um, I've tried to, since leaving government on January 20th, 2009, I've tried to emulate our former boss and stay off the radar screen. But um, when, uh, when, when, back when Adam calls, um, I'm, I'm happy to do something be- because it was such a privilege to serve with you and, and, I uh, so much appreciated the great work that you did for the president and the country. Hey, Josh King, uh, I, I've been wanting to share this, and I think this is probably a good opportunity to do it, a brief story. Um, for me, it was quite a turn to come out of being a broadcast journalist, uh, a place where objectivity rules. And uh, I tried very hard. My political persuasion, being a Republican, was not a part of uh, my persona as a journalist. And when I found myself sitting in the... Uh, lobby to the White House after four or five botched attempts to meet with Joshua Bolton uh, for an interview, I finally found myself sitting in the chief of staff's office in the White House. And you'd think that that, uh, that you would be preoccupied with the significance of where you were and just the grandeur of being inside the White House. I wasn't. I was laser focused, not wanting to mess up my interview. And uh, you spent a full half hour with me and gave me some great insight into a couple of things. One, how seriously you took uh, the role of uh, portraying the image and the message of the presidency, not only to Americans, but to the rest of the world, and how consistent we needed to be uh, with with making sure the president was well served. And then also you gave me some wonderful compliments about uh, the place that I had hailed from at ABC News, that forward-looking journalism on where the ball is bouncing and where the story is going was something that you appreciated much more than the gotcha journalism that we so often see on cable or sometimes even on Sunday morning. Um, And you told me something uh, about what it was to work in the White House, and this has stayed with me ever since. And it was that it's a huge privilege, and and it is obviously a 24-7, 365 job, as Josh and I have described on the air before. But you really uh, admonished me to make sure that I included my family and my loved ones and my friends uh, in that experience and to bring them by and share the White House and, and just enjoy every minute of it while I had that unique opportunity. I want to thank you for that. Uh, it, it is unique. And Josh King, you, you probably agree that one of the great perks of working in the White House is um, being able to show it off to friends and family and um, um, to just you know, students coming by. It's, I, a, it's I, a great, it is a, it is a great place whether you're a Republican, Democrat, Independent, or anywhere else. I'm of the firm belief that America's best French fries are made in the White House mess. Do you hear that, Josh <laughs> uh, You know, I probably ate too many of them to be, <laughs> to be objective about it at this point. I, I would say that easily, two for over a period of the eight years of the. Bush administration, two-thirds of my meals came from the mess. There's nothing like having french fries in a styrofoam cup with the presidential seal on it. <laughs> it is a remarkable opportunity to be you know, there. No, but... they're still french fries, Josh. I got <laughs> No, they're, they are better than french. They're freedom fries. They're freedom they're fries. Freedom fries. <laughs> Joshua Bolton, um, it's a testament, I think, to the style uh, that you brought to working as a head of the OMB and deputy chief of staff and chief of staff, that the most fulsome portrait 
that has been drawn of Joshua Bolton can actually only be found in the Daily Princetonian, uh, your the um, the newspaper of your alma mater. And one thing that it that that article shows is that your dad was a uh, a veteran of World War II, uh, a prisoner of war, and also uh, after the war, I presume, a CIA agent. And what what did his service uh, prov- uh, prepare you to do? when obviously you walk from being head of OMB into managing uh, the intricacies of the national security structure in your role as chief of staff? Um, My dad's entire life um, was in government service. Um, And uh, it was a, it was a terrific example for me. I mean, he was not a, he was not a famous person. Most of his career was at the CIA. So, uh, he was intentionally discreet. Um, he was a, you know, a senior official there, but not a big cheese. Um, and he had a fabulous career of service to our country, and uh, he loved it. That's what I saw, and it was a huge influence on me. His, uh, he and a lot of the people with whom he served were uh, really my heroes growing up. And I brought that sensibility with me uh, into the privilege of, uh, of being in the White House. I'm sorry, Josh. One of the things I wanted to jump in and sort of point out was that, uh, uh, Joshua Bolton, your service uh, to the nation, as I said, is extended through a couple of, of different administrations and different roles. Um, and, and as Josh points out, you, you come from a family who served uh, our nation. Uh, as we tape this uh, interview, it is... Uh, the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah, and you were one of the first Jewish Americans to serve in this role. And the president made, President Bush made a great deal about faith and how important he knows it is in the, in the lives of all of us. And he supported so uh, ably uh, all of the different faiths in the United States. And we celebrated uh, holidays of, of every stripe in the White House, and the president always took part in that. Um, do you feel like the faith-based initiatives and, and, and the sort of wide-open uh, ability to bring people of different faiths together in the Bush administration was something that ranks high in the list of things that you're proud of, or is it not as important um, ultimately for you as former chief of staff? You know, it's not at the top of the list, Adam, of the things I'm proud of from the Bush administration, but I, but I am very proud of it, and I, I think with good reason. Um, and that is that um, I think President Bush demonstrated that you can be a person of deep faith um, and that your, your principles can be formed in part by faith and still um, not permit religion to, um, to intrude on the public square um, in a way that many Americans would find offensive. Um, I, you know, when I first went to work for President Bush, in, and I started early on, I didn't, I didn't start at the White House, I started two years before that as policy director of the Bush campaign. I moved from London to Austin in early 1999 to start to work on that campaign. And when I started there, um, and you know, friends found out that I had, um, I had jumped on, on pursued this ridiculous course of working on a presidential campaign. Um, and I, I got a lot of surprised reactions, especially from Jewish friends who were surprised that um, a Jew like myself would sign up with somebody whom they perceived to be a, a Bible-thumping fundamentalist who, who thought that all Jews were headed straight for hell. And I had trouble persuading him that that wasn't, that wasn't the way it was, that President Bush it was and is a person of great faith and a believer in faith, um, but not solely his faith. And he, was, he and Mrs. Bush were very respectful of mine. Mrs. Bush always made sure that if, uh, you know, at a, at a meal at their house or a barbecue or something, if the main course had anything to do with pork, um, she would always make sure that there was a, uh, a big portobello mushroom on the grill for me, something like that. Um, and very, very sensitive, very respectful. Um, and I think good examples of how faith um, can be important 
um, without um, without crossing the the line that Americans have become accustomed to. Given that, Joshua, it was uh, it was eye opening for me, also a Jew, to see that uh, early on in his administration, President Obama held what I think was the first, at least, public seder that a president has has ever held. What was your reaction to that, and and generally about? Uh, the different traditions that both President Bush and then President Obama after him have tried to ennoble as given the role as the president of the United States? I, I thought President Obama having a Seder at the White House was terrific, and, and I wished we'd thought of it. Um, what, what President Bush did was that he, um, uh, he had the first um, menorah lighting, Hanukkah. That's right. Menorah I remember lighting. being a part of subsequent uh, iterations of that. Right. He had the first one ever held in the White House um, itself, and he was the first to serve a, a truly kosher meal uh, at, I think it was at one of the Hanukkah receptions, uh, where they actually uh, had the rabbis come in and kosher the kitchen. We have, I have some great photographs of the rabbis coming through the, the That's wa- real behind-the-scenes stuff, folks. Yeah. I mean, you're listening to polyoptics here on, on POTUS. the kitchen. And uh, the chief of they staff. Actually, they, yeah, and, and, uh, and to have these, uh, uh, have these very specialized rabbis come in and help kosher the kitchen in the, uh, in the bowels of the, of the mansion, in the, of the residence, uh, was a great experience. Um, and, I, and I've got some really good, good photos of that. Um, it's actually an interesting story to to be told at some point, um, but I think that I think all of that is terrific. I think um, the I think the right way for our political leaders to behave is not to treat religion as something that needs to be carefully separated from our public life, but uh, on the contrary, celebrated as long as. Um, everybody has an opportunity to be celebrated. And Josh, the, the, the place where I think it's especially important now um, is in, um, is in the, rel- the relations, not so much between Christians and Jews, um, but between Christians and Jews and Muslims in America, that it's, it's a very important emblem for our political leaders to make clear that as we um, continue on with what remains a war with uh, with radical f- fundamental Islamists. The United States is not at war with Islam, and there, there, there's a misperception about that still that persists in many places around the world in the United States. And I think it's incumbent on our political leaders to do everything they can to defuse that. Joshua Bolton, the intricacies of koshering the White House kitchen give rise to the question of what it's like to come into the uh, White House in a what is really a management role. There are so many different agencies and staffers and organizations at work in the White House. And I'm interested what you what you brought to approaching uh, this challenge, especially given that uh, Andy Card, your predecessor, had done so much uh, in the years prior to your arrival. And how do you think Bill Daly is doing sort of also as the second chief of staff of an administration? Well, I'll start with my with my own experience. I was I was blessed before I became chief of staff to have had um, plenty of exposure already. I had great training at the feet of Andy Card, who, who is one of the most um, gracious and decent men on the planet, and uh, who I think was a, was a superb chief of staff, and uh, had an opportunity to watch him in action. He um, had an opportunity to be a deputy chief of staff during um, Bush 41's administration, the George H.W. Bush, whom in, when Adam and I were at the White House, we called that President 41 for the 41st president, and we called uh, the guy we served 43 um, to be sure to distinguish him. And Andy had been deputy chief of staff for three years during 41's administration. I served as deputy chief of staff to Andy for the first two years of the Bush 43 administration, and that, that was a great education. Um, and then the opportunity to serve as budget director, which is um, 
a, a job that takes you physically out of the West Wing, but just across West Executive Drive into the um, Eisenhower Executive Office Building, um, that that still is intimately intertwined with what's going on at the White House. So by the by the time I became chief of staff in early 2006, I'd already had five years experience of watching how the place works. And I'm very glad I did. I don't I don't think I um, I could have done the job um, period without that without the kind of experience that I that I developed before I uh, before I came in in 2006. And so uh, as you as you finish up giving us that answer, uh, do you watch closely what's going on these days uh, with your knowledge of, of how the White House works and how policy uh comes out of the White House, but then also lands on the Hill and uh, uh, this negotiation that goes on. Bill Daly taking over as the second chief of staff to follow up on Josh's question. Do you, do you have a, uh, an appreciation for the challenges of the job and look at it through that lens when you see what your predecessor or successors are doing? Yeah. Well, in answer to your first question, no, I have the luxury of not having to follow things very closely. Um, so I, uh, I, you know, I remember in the first week after the Bush administration ended, that would be uh, the week uh, following January 20th, 2009, uh, I remember feeling it was such a luxury that I didn't have to watch a single damn news show, I didn't have to read a single newspaper. <laughs> you, you deserved and, that break. And above all, I didn't have to watch a Sunday show. Yeah. Um, so Was that I've, the bane of your existence to have to get to the end of a week yeah, and know that your guys are going out there, or even you occasionally yeah, uh, took the chair? I I did my best to avoid it, but um, boy, that it was it was sometimes painful. Those are those are good shows. Those you know the uh, uh, the Sunday talk shows. They they're typically serious, good opportunities for airing of um, whatever happens to be the most important issues on the public agenda at that time. Um, but man, when you're, you know, when you're on the inside, they, they can rarely do you any good and they can very often do you a lot of harm and, um, sort of, you know, limping to the end of a week and then realizing that, um, you got to watch out what's going to happen on that Sunday. That risk it's- reward calculus is tough with the media in general, and that's sort of a great segue for where I want to take our audience here on Polyoptics to have the White House Chief of Staff in the studio with whom we enjoy this wonderful relationship. We're going to now take all of you with us on a journey into the hot seat where the chief sits and he's managing, as Josh has said. Um, well, first of all, I want to point out uh, in the Bush administration, the chief of staff was a member of the cabinet. Uh, you were essentially at the level of a cabinet secretary. You were at the table, not only managing all of these agencies and working with all of these cabinet secretaries, but uh, equal among them uh, in your uh, place with the president and um, the way that the country and the government was managed. But within the executive office of the president, there are different levels of, of uh, commissioned officers. There are assistants to the president, deputy assistants to the president, special assistants to the president, all of whom have a role to play, all of whom report up the chain and ultimately back to the chief of staff. And I was, I was thinking about all of the things that we do as communicators trying to serve the presidency of the United States and help uh, take a president's message and make it connect with the American people or help it be better understood or showcase the president uh, and his initiatives as he's meeting with people around the country outside the Beltway. These things uh, of which we talk about on polyoptics so often have a huge advanced component. Uh, one of your deputy chiefs of staff, who was a great mentor of mine in the time I knew him, was Joe Hagan. And he could take a vision and see clearly to how we would execute it and bring it forth. And then we, in, in our communication shop, had an even smaller, finer uh, role of the visual communications element, refining that message and so forth. But ultimately, all of these visions and all of these ideas about where the president would go how he would interact with people had to meet muster with the chief of staff. 
did that require an incredible vision of creativity on your part or just a great deal of trust in the people that you would tap to to take care of these things and explain them to you so that then you could give them to the boss yeah fortunately uh it's um it's the latter i had a lot of trust in in good people and because if we had to rely on my creativity we um boy we'd we'd have been in much worse shape than we ended up being in. Um, but we did have good people. And part of what, um, I think part of what makes a good White House, and it's, it's probably true of any organization, but it's especially true of a White House, is um, that there are, um, there are good people in all of the key posts with clear lines of responsibility who are empowered by the people above them. Um, that began with the president who um, completely empowered me as his chief of staff. He said, he said something interesting to me, which on, on, my, uh, on my first day, or uh, actually when he first offered me the job as chief of staff, um, as he was describing what he wanted, his first sentence was, um, I don't need a prime minister. And it, that was an unnecessary thing to say to me because I, I had been with him in the White House for five years already. And so I, I knew what his, what his preferences and needs were, but I, um, it's actually good that he said it out loud um, because it's, it's an important indicator of what he was looking for in staff. But what followed the I don't need a prime minister was, but I'm going to count on you to be in charge to make the place run right. And what's behind that is that I knew that um, I had the president's confidence, um, that he wanted me to make decisions about staffing and so on. Leave to him and leave him the space to make the big important decisions um, and empower me to actually exercise the authority that a chief of staff needs to exercise about who's going to who's going to come in when who's going to uh, who's going to fill what position what are the issues that need to be brought before the president in what time period how are we going to allocate the president's time which Adam as you as you alluded to just now is one of the most important functions of the chief of staff is carefully um, rationing the most valuable asset that any White House has, which is the president's t time. Well, Josh and I talk about this all the time, and I think, Josh, you want to go there, this idea that the idea of planning for a president, his schedule goes weeks, if not months, in advance, right, Josh? And that's right. I mean, everything from the, the major set pieces, the State of the Union, uh, the UN General Assembly, uh, visits to um, the G8 summit, wherever it happens to be, these are major events that sort of dot the calendar for which pre-advanced teams are dispatched. And then they come back, Joshua Bolton, and they report to you. And take us, take Adam and me through the process and our listeners of the lens through which you saw the creative ideas that came to you and you know your the the judiciousness with which you allowed some of that creativity to move through and actually come forth to reality and sometimes when you felt you might need to sort of put the hammer down and not let some of these things through um really at the at the crux of the role of uh, of a chief of staff um Josh let me take let me take you back to um, a very practical thing that I, I did early on in my tenure as deputy chief of staff to Andy Card, who who was really good at that at that function of helping um, sort out how we were going to use the president's time and his experience from the Bush forty one White House and and the Reagan White House before that was crucial in helping us do that. Um, I came up with an innovation early on in the. Bush 43 years um, that's, that today seems um, very, uh, very basic and low-tech. Um, but in my office, in the Deputy Chief of Staff's office, which is directly across a, a little reception area from the Chief of Staff's office, um, and in fact a few paces closer to the Oval than the Chief of Staff's office, that's, it's, a, 
it's a really small space. It's uh, it's maybe 50 yards from the the entry to the chief of staff's office down to the Oval. Um, but one of the few people who gets an office in that power corridor is the deputy chief of staff. And in that office, what I what I had the carpenters install on the wall uh, was a little cabinet um, that opened up. Uh, to have four panels. It, it would close to have two, and then you could open both doors, and it would have four panels, um, each one maybe pretty big, you know, maybe two by four feet or three by five feet, something like that. Um, and on each one of those panels was the calendar for a full month um, on a whiteboard. And when, uh, when we would convene a group called Andy's Anonymous, <laughs> uh, once a week, uh, and we tried to keep it anonymous because if, if too many people, uh, everybody knew it existed, but if, if it became too, too formalized and everything, we'd, too many people would want to get into the meeting, and it was important to be able to do it with only, you know, with, with only some of the, the key people in the room. And we, would, we started convening Andy's anonymous meeting in, that, in my office where I installed these four pat panels, and it, those panels gave us an opportunity to do exactly what um, the, the folks who were doing that sort of planning need to do, which is not, not worry so much about, um, you know, what's happening at 10 a.m. next Tuesday. But what's the, what's the overall picture? Are we, are we putting the president's time to the use um, that his highest priorities call for? And when you look at a whole four-month calendar... And sometimes we would go even farther out, but at a minimum, when you look at a four-month calendar, uh, you actually get a picture and can see, uh, good grief, the president's top priority is education, and we're going a whole month without the president saying a word about education. Right, so you see we that to, narrative starting to be created. You see, and you you see can... the whole you see the whole narrative laid out in front of you in, I'm embarrassed to say, a very low-tech way, um, but it served us well, and we would spend two hours uh, with Andy Card and Carl Rove, uh, Karen Hughes, Dan Bartlett, um, later Ed Gillespie. Um, we would spend at least an hour and a half, sometimes two, sometimes three hours, just standing in front of that calendar talking and looking and trying to figure out how to make sure that the presidency was not just an exercise in responding to the inbox which is always the risk of, of that kind of position, but rather that we use the president's time proactively to advance um, what he thought was most important. One of the things that, uh, you know, when, when I was serving in the White House, uh, when you were chief of staff, it was JAs, and, uh, you know, I never was yeah, in, that, in one of those yeah, meetings. Josh's anonymous doesn't really sound as good <laughs> no, as Andy's as good anonymous. As AAs, but, uh, you know, we would wait very late into the night sometimes, you know, in nine o'clock hour to get a readout from that meeting to know where the priorities were. What what could or should we be working on? What had popped onto that calendar that was going to require serious attention and or travel? As Josh and I uh, have, Josh King and I have been talking about uh, this conversation with you and thinking about the things that we could elicit from you and some insights that we could gain, uh, there are two things that stand out and I want to sort of throw them at you uh, both at the same time, and maybe we can get you to, to talk us through it. But one of them is uh, the, the the chief of staff ultimately has, uh, as, as I believe it to be, this, this appreciation for not only the priorities of the president, but other members of this, the cabinet who are also looking for the president's support. And you have so many really high-profile uh, people uh, during the Bush administration, folks like Condoleezza Rice, um, Colin Powell, Donald Rumsfeld, among others, uh, and of course the Vice President Cheney, of the United yeah. States, uh, Dick Cheney. Um, what is it like to... Do, does the Chief of Staff end up being a referee in these things? Is it uh, uh, an, uh, an opportunity for trying to set priorities or, or rebuff some of these requests or help to, to ameliorate uh, some of the urgency that may be there with the reality of, well, this is where we are and we can't go there yet. We've got other priorities. That's the first part of what we're, we're really hoping to get some understanding from you. And in fact, it's so momentous a question, I should just stop and see if you'll tackle that with us. 
Yeah, sure. Um, yep, the chief of staff is a referee pretty often. Uh, it, it's kind of interesting. You were, uh, I noticed in, in, a few minutes ago, you were you were kind of struggling with where to where to place the chief of staff in the hierarchy of the the cabinet. Well, you, we know the chief of staff's at the very top, is the in my opinion. But no, well, but you were struggling with that because you were you were saying kind of well, he's you know the equal of or something like that. Um, and it's a it's a funny role because um, it is both one of the least important members of the cabinet um, because you're a staffer, mm. um, and that's what that's what the president was reminding me of when he said, "I don't need a prime minister." You're a staffer. You're you're there to serve the president. Um, you lead a pretty big organization, the White House, but it's not like leading the Defense Department or the State Department, something like that. Which are which are vast organizations, um, and uh, so in, in that respect, um, I think the chief of staff needs to be humble and ne- needs to make sure that he or maybe eventually she um, is a is a modest figure. At the same time, uh, when you speak uh, with the authority of the president, which is what the chief of staff's real job is, to um, be sure. That uh, uh, you know, n- next after the president, the person who speaks most often with the authority of the president is the president's chief of staff. And when you speak with that authority, you're the most important member of the cabinet. And um, what's very important, I think, for a chief of staff to do is to make sure that uh, the chief of staff, in his own mind, distinguishes between those roles. That you know. This is me, but this is the president, and make sure that everybody else understands that uh, that you appreciate that. And I found that I got terrific support from uh, even the you know the biggest figures in the cabinet, like Powell, Rice, Rumsfeld, Paulson. I didn't hear Cheney in that mix. Uh, and Cheney. Okay. I was, I was Josh just, King I was just pausing. Yeah, but we paused. He was coming. I, I, I was, I was just. <laughs> Darth pa- Vader's on the list. I was just pausing for a breath there, Josh. Okay. A, a dramatic, a dramatic pause before <laughs> I, before I hit you with Cheney. Every single one of those people, um, I found that I had a good relationship with, because they knew they could count on me to exercise my authority as chief of staff, only when I was doing so. Uh, uh, with the authority of the president, and they uh, they uniformly um, respected that and treated me both personally courteously and professionally very responsibly. Um, and you know, uh, two of the people I just mentioned have a special appreciation for that because they themselves were chiefs of staff. Um, Don Rumsfeld was uh, chief of staff to um, Senator Gerald Ford in, I think, 1974 to 75, uh, as a very young man. Uh, He was chief of staff to Gerald Ford, uh, and then went on from being chief of staff in the last year of the Ford administration to be the youngest Secretary of Defense ever. By the way, a footnote here, um, during the Bush administration, he became the oldest Secretary of Defense ever. Um, His, he promoted when he left Gerald Ford promoted Don Rumsfeld's very young deputy. He was only in his mid-30s at the time, uh, a young guy named Dick Cheney, to become his, Gerald Ford's last chief of staff. So the two of them had a great appreciation for how the role needs to be done and always treated me with um, utmost courtesy and respect for the office. My personal experience having served... uh in the, in the executive office of the president with you, Josh uh, Bolton, is that uh, that level of respect and, and bringing protégés along and building experience and capabilities and capacity uh, is a really important role. Uh, you brought Joel Kaplan uh, with you from OMB, and now Joel was uh, deputy chief of staff while I was there, and he was someone, when you saw Joel Kaplan coming and you could steal a few minutes to talk to him, he was one of the most affable uh, friendly guys, incredibly serious, but yet capable of, of lighthearted moments, and was a family man and, and had uh, a great record of service. But you realize that these were the future leaders. These were the people who were getting the experience that they could carry forward in future administrations. We have to wrap up. I have one more question that I'm 
desperate to ask. I really want to know from you, uh, Josh Bolton, the the consoler in chief, the commander in chief, plays so many different roles, so many different hats, and yet we are in a place now where George W. Bush spent a great deal of time. Uh, hurricanes, tornadoes, uh, Katrina was an issue uh, to be sure in the administration, and, and maybe some partially failed responses there. But it, it portends a, a, a change in the presidency a little bit. Even Barack Obama is out there following this lead. Bill Clinton uh, took on a lot of these responsibilities to be out there with the American people in times of crisis and disaster. This is also a matter of polyoptics, a, a matter of where is the president and what is he doing and how does it feel to the American people? Does he appreciate or she ultimately appreciate where we are, what we're going through? The words are not enough. The speeches and the teleprompted addresses are not enough. And yet the president can go out there and make a profound impact. As the chief of staff, I ask you, uh, was that top of mind for you as you thought about dealing with those unexpected uh, disasters and those momentous things that no one could have put on a calendar for you and yet here you were reconciling with and how does the president play a role in leading the country at those times? Huge. Uh, absolutely huge issues. But before I before I say a word about that though, let me say I'm glad that you mentioned uh, Joel Kaplan and um, uh, some of the other people with whom I served, the younger people with whom I served, um, Kristen Silverberg, Keith Hennessy, all all on, all below forty, um, enormously capable. There's nothing I'm prouder of in my service in the Bush White House than having had the opportunity to um, help bring those people along because they they not only gave great service in that administration. I'm I'm confident they will give great service in the future. Now on the uh, on the consoler in chief role, absolutely crucial. Obviously badly fumbled by the Bush administration in Katrina. Um, and it, it only took a couple of, uh, a couple of mistakes, um, and the biggest one being uh, one that the president himself has acknowledged several times of flying over New Orleans instead of landing there uh, when he was on his way back to D.C. after the, uh, after the hurricane hit. Um, and, I mean, a lot of people pass that stuff, that kind of stuff off as, oh, it's just theater and it's, uh, you know, it's, it's just the, uh, the fluff and the drama of the thing. Um, and it's much more important than that. And, um, I mean, it, it's why, the, Adam, the kind of role that you were in, I think, is, is so important to a White House because a huge part of the president's job is setting a tone and um, providing comfort and confidence and you see that in a crisis like 9/11, um, where uh, where President Bush hit hit the notes perfectly, Katrina where he didn't, um, and in something like a financial crisis where the world is watching, the world is watching for the tone, the body language of the President of the United States, and those always always have to be properly portrayed because. Um, that has substantive results. It's not, it's not just about the popularity of the president, about which, by the way, Bush 43 cared very little and has the, you know, left with the approval ratings to prove it. Um, but it's, it is about generating um, a, a feeling in the country, in the world, uh, that competent people are there leading in the lead who care about what's going on with the ordinary folks. We are uh, incredibly lucky to have... Uh, gotten your time today to share in this discussion with us. Uh, Joshua King, um, what more can you say to have a, a former chief of staff join us here on Polyoptics? Well, you know, when you read about Joshua Bolton and you hear his friends, and not necessarily those who served in the White House with him, but his friends refer to uh, him as Mr. Justice Bolton, and you joined us on Polyoptics for our conversation with him over the last uh 30 minutes or so, you understand why, that even administering over this team of rivals that, well, since the Bush administration ended, have sort of shown their cracks in what might have been in play uh, back between 2001 and 2009, you see that when people like Josh Bolton are stewarding over the West Wing, a lot of these fissures can be well-managed and kept uh, really under the radar so that the good work of the government can go forward. Thank you for every opportunity you gave me, and thank you for being here on the show today, Josh. Great pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
Coming up on our next segment in Polyoptics, Lynn Novick, director and executive producer of Prohibition, the story of America's battle with the 18th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States. It's only on POTUS. for a documentary addict like me is is measured by the span between premieres of new work from Florentine films, of which our guest Lynn Novick has been a part since 1989. If you love the Civil War, baseball, Frank Lloyd Wright, jazz, or the war, you have Lynn Novick and, of course, her partner Ken Burns to thank. Watched for the first time on PBS or over and over on DVD, even for the music, the narration, the commentary, or an underappreciated element, the cinematography. Their American history packaged for us on the screen, often distinct periods of our national story brought to life through all the bells and whistles of the art of documentary filmmaking. Lynn, after, you, after Yale, you joined the Smithsonian and then teamed up with Bill Moyers. It should be noted the former top aide to President Lyndon Johnson, based on our conversation with Joshua Bolton just a couple minutes ago, on Moyers' landmark projects for PBS. Was this trajectory you expected from your college years in American studies, and how did filmmaking evolve for you? I had no trajectory planned, uh, which I maybe should be embarrassed to admit, but I really didn't know what I wanted to do. My goal was to get into college and do well in college, and I didn't have a plan for after that. So I majored in American studies because I thought it was really, really interesting to look at history and culture in a multidisciplinary way. And then I really sort of fumbled around for a few years and eventually decided I wanted to be somehow involved in documentaries or in television production or something. So I sort of, it took me a while to find my path. Let's just put it that way. And and the move, you grew up in New York City, you went to Yale, the move to Washington to work on the Smithsonian. What was it like for a young woman coming to Washington for the first time and, and having America's closet right in front of you? Yeah, the Smithsonian is an unbelievable institution, as we all know, and it was pretty exciting to be behind the scenes, to go you know, behind the exhibits and into the storage rooms and work with the curators. And also, I had to answer the mail, and people wrote in with all kinds of weird things they had in their attics and wanted to know if we would like it for the Smithsonian's collection. So... It was it was an amazing window into the world of the nation's attic. That's what they call it, and it really is that. So before we get to Prohibition, uh, which premieres on Sunday, October 2nd on PBS and then runs for another successive two nights, uh, October 3rd and 4th, given, what, given that we are now in October and there are other events uh, going on, I, I want to start with a question that calls in your Yale background and your work with Ken Burns as a producer on the 1994 nine-part series Baseball, one of the most watched programs uh, of public television. Now, as a Yaley, Ryan LaVarnway of my beloved Red Sox hit two home runs in the 161st game of the regular season. It marked what we thought might be the great comeback of 2011. Now, you and Ken created the 10th inning of baseball, both to report on the steroid era and to bury the curse of the Bambino, which happened in 2004 and punctuated by the repeat World Series victory in 2007. But do you now feel compelled to rub it in with an 11th inning? And how do you square your fidelity to Yale and rooting for LaVarnway <laughs> with your New York City heritage and the hometown team? Well, okay. First of all, yes, 11th inning, you know, when we were finishing up the 10th inning, I heard Ken say, oh, that'll be in the 11th inning, anything that happened after we finished that film. So the story of baseball continues. It doesn't end just because we stopped working on our film. So I suppose it is possible that 10, 15, 20 years from now, if we're still breathing and still doing this, we might consider an 11th inning, depending on what happens. We'd like the Cubs to win the World Series. That would maybe necessitate an 11th inning. Were you watching uh, this week and the historic last day of the season? Uh, I watched a little bit. I did not stay up late enough last night to see all the theatrics. Um, my son was up, even though it was way past his bedtime. What an amazing uh, series of baseball games last night. Incredible. Which is why, you know, the game never disappoints, really. Lynn, uh, Adam Belmar here. You know, the, the, the people that you cast in your films, like Shelby Foote for the Civil War or 
uh, now uh, Daniel Ockren, Peter Hamill, and Prohibition, they have that combination of uh, evocative voice and scholarship and sort of ruddy reality on a camera that makes them perfect uh, for the age. Uh, listen for a second to Mike Barnacle talk about baseball. I have still two gloves that I've carted across all the years, and I have them for a purpose. One selfish, one familial. The selfish reason is I love them. I love them because they remind me of what I was when I was a kid, and they allow me to still be a kid when I hold the gloves. I can still see my parents. I can still see the apartment we lived in, all of those things. The familial reason is that my kids, like a lot of kids today, have an excess of things, material things. A bad day for them is they lose an iPod. But my boys who played baseball, when they were 12, 13, or 14, they would occasionally come to me and say, Dad, I, I can't find my stuff. I can't find my catcher's equipment. Do you know where my bats went? And I'd go get one of the gloves, and I'd say, I'd hold it up, and I'd say, I've had this since 1954. I know where this is. Go find your stuff and don't lose it. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. Lynn, in the storyboarding of your films, what, what is the process for picking these characters? Uh, you know, it's the chorus that we see on screen. Well, that, that is such a great question, and I could probably go on for the rest of the time we have together to explain because each one is sort of a little bit different. Um, sometimes it's someone who's written a book on a subject. Sometimes it's someone who was witness to a period of history. Like for in Prohibition, we have people who were old enough to remember Prohibition themselves or people who've written about it and studied it. And I think what we're really looking for ultimately, and this is a big part of my job, is sort of we would call it casting, you know, finding the people, getting them in front of the camera, asking them the right questions, choosing from the interview the best stuff, and then putting that in the film. It's really an authenticity. That's what we want. Someone who can talk to you like as if the camera weren't there and they're telling you a story that you haven't heard before, and they're not talking down to you, and they're not presuming that you know too much about this so that they're um, sort of pontificating. And it's just sort of an authenticity and honesty and directness and hopefully an emotional openness to some degree. That's what we're looking for. There's no magic formula. I mean, you know, when we I interviewed Buck O'Neill for our baseball series, and I brought back the footage, and Ken could tell immediately. I mean, I could tell he was an amazing interview. And people always said, you know, where'd you find Buck O'Neill? Well, he wasn't hard to find. If you were doing a film on baseball and you want to talk about the Negro Leagues, anyone who knew anything would tell you, you've got to talk to this guy in Kansas City, Buck O'Neill. Now, he wasn't famous the way he became after our film came out, but that's true in all the subjects that we find. The people that we look for often are well-known in their field, but we have the opportunity to share their knowledge and their personality kind of with a much wider audience. But so many of the characters that you portray in your films are now dead. Right. Uh, I mean, in Prohibition, you've got to bring characters that lived over a century ago to live in the film, in essence. And let's play a clip, uh, clip of the great actress Patricia Clarkson in the role of temperance leader Carrie Nation. And then I want to get into how you find and cast these characters. I told the owner, Mr. Dobson, get out of the way. I don't want to strike you, but I'm going to break up this den of ice. I began to throw at the mirror and the bottles below the mirror. Mr. Dobson and his companion jumped into a corner, seemed very much terrified. From that, I went to another saloon until I had destroyed three. The other dive keepers closed up, stood in front of their places, and would not let me in. Carry Nation. Yeah, well, Patricia Clarkson, what a talent. I mean, the, we've worked with a lot of people over and over in many projects, but we had not worked with Patricia Clarkson before Prohibition. And we admired her work, and we often have sort of our wish list of actors we'd like to try. And if they're open to doing it, they come in. They've never seen the material before. They just come in cold, and they just look at it and start reading. And she had a whole range of different accents from Kansas to Arkansas to wherever you wanted. And she was able to, by understanding what Carrie Nation, I think, looked like, she'd seen a picture just bring this character to life. It's it's a rare gift. Not every great actor can do what we want. It's really sort of an interior kind of reading. It's not a full performance where the camera's on them. So the words have to do all the work. And the, the emotion and the meaning has to be conveyed somewhat subtly. And not every amazing actor that you can imagine 
would be good at doing this, but we've been lucky enough to work with some pretty incredible talent. And there's some great Foley work in there, too, isn't there? Yes. (laughs) Tell us about that. Yeah, so, you know, after the film is edited and we've locked the picture, then we bring in the sound editors, and they add sound effects for everything that you see and sometimes things you don't see. And we have worked with the same team of sound editors for 20 years, and they have a great imagination also, an incredible sort of um, toolkit of sounds for the Prohibition film, they also actually did a bunch of Foley sessions where they smashed things up and recorded it because we have all different kinds of smashing. We have smashing bottles, we have smashing kegs, we have smashing windows, we have smashing bars like Carrie Nation did. So they had a lot of fun smashing. And then they have to put it in the script, I mean, put it in the film at exactly the right place. And then we have to mix it into the soundtrack. So there's a lot of craft involved and some very, very talented and creative people who just love the challenge of bringing this sort of two-dimensional object, a photograph or a piece of footage alive, and sound has a huge amount to do with that. You know, when you talk about bringing things alive, uh, that is exactly what you accomplish, not just here in Prohibition, but in, in all of the work that you've done. And when I, when I was starting to think about this nexus between this brilliant documentary that the world's about to see and uh, Polyoptics, this radio show that Josh and I do uh, every every week here on POTUS, uh, Sirius XM 124, I started to think about how American history in this regard and the telling of it and bringing it to life helps people appreciate it in a way that uh, perhaps reading a book or even uh, hearing bits and pieces through oral history can never accomplish. Do you feel that way, that you're bringing these things to life is, is just about educating America and, and, and clarifying where we've been so that we know a little bit better about where we're going? Um, on a good day, if we're doing our <laughs> job right, I hope that's what we're doing. What we're really trying to do is tell a good story and tell it well but the stories are about history because that's what we're interested in. And ultimately, that's exactly what we're trying to do is to find out where were we, how did we get here, and hopefully, by extension, where are we going. Um, There is a lot of alchemy involved in trying to make something out of nothing. It's not like there's a preordained roadmap for us for any given subject. So whatever film we've made, we have to kind of not make it up in terms of making up the history, but figure out how are we going to tell the story, what aspects are we going to focus on, what are we going to leave out, because we actually leave out much more than we put in. And so we usually pick a few examples or a few aspects of the story and sort of breathe a lot of, put a lot of focus on that and see if that can help us shed light on the larger whole. So, for example, in Prohibition, you know, every city, every town had bootleggers. Lots of people broke the law, millions of them, and we couldn't tell every single one. So we just picked a few that we thought were really interesting and also really revealing. And that's what we sort of burrowed in on and, and made sure we could make those feel real to an audience today. The cinematic experience, though, is is about more than just the facts that you're telling. I mean, we were just talking about the Foley work and the sound editing, but music and what you do with these films is so important. Uh, I mean, obviously, when you've got a film like Jazz, the soundtrack is all important. It's Grammy-winning. It's going to sell a lot of uh, copies in itself. Uh, but in Prohibition, you teamed up with Wynton Marsalis again. It, what does his appreciation of the time and the setting bring to the project, and how does music move the narratives for you? Well, it has been such an honor to work with Winton over many projects. He is a genius musician and a composer, and he's also a great student of history and someone who's interested in how the films can work to convey ideas about history and how we do that through music. I think he's able to evoke the spirit of the times musically with his small group today. So they're playing a modern version of older recordings and putting it in a modern slant in terms of the musical tradition, but always honoring the past. And it's a very unusual thing to do. It never sounds hokey or old-fashioned when he plays it. And yet, it sounds fresh and new, but it could be a very old record that they're kind of riffing off of. So we have been just nothing short of awestruck in the studio with Winton. And, you know, the way it works is usually we uh, go to him fairly early in our process, give him a copy of the script or maybe the rough cut of the film, and sort of talk about the kind of different music we'd like to have for that for that project. So it might be something sad, something scary, something sexy, something rebellious, whatever. For this particular Prohibition project, we had kind of emotional or thematic ideas. And he just came up with these compositions and then directed his band to play them. And we pretty much sat there and said, that sounds good. And then we use those different compositions in different ways in the film. We don't necessarily have a plan for how we're going to use it. It's a very fluid and open process. So he doesn't score the film. He provides sort of raw material, the way that an interview was raw material or, or 
photographs or stock footage. And then we, with our editors, say, oh, you know, we should use that particular theme that Witten did for this gangster scene, or this would be really good to use in that scene where the women are praying against protesting that, you know, the saloon should close or whatever. And, and he doesn't know where we're going to use it, and we don't even know that when he's recording it. I love that. You know, I'm a I'm not a documentary filmmaker, but I do make uh, short films for uh, a variety of different uh, venues, and and I love that appreciation that as you gather all of the elements for a story, that uh, even you don't know where you're going to use it, but you know you've got something great as you capture it, and it it makes me think a little bit about the Civil War, uh, this 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 amazing film where you introduced, you know, all of us Mac users to something called the Ken Burns effect, something born out of the necessity for subject matter in which still photography, you know, from folks like Alexander Gardner or Matthew Brady was all you had to work with. And then in baseball and jazz, as, as Josh points out in the war, um, you have sort of all of the 20th century in your lens, this entire breadth of the Library of Congress, the National Archives. How do you choose what to use? Wow. Uh, it can keep us up at night because we really <laughs> have a lot of choices often, and then you, you hope you made the right choice. And in each case, it can be seemingly random. It's usually intuitive. I mean, sometimes it's a particular moment in time that you're talking about. Babe Ruth hit his, you know, whatever, um, 60th home run. And there's a footage of that or a photograph of that moment. That's what you're going to use. But oftentimes it's something that's much more um, fluid. And you, you really have to pick something that's not the exact representation of the event or the place or whatever. So then we just pick whatever we think is sort of closest historically and most accurate and then most represents the feeling that we think is appropriate. But it all begins with the written word and the script. Is that the, yes. like in the film process? It does begin with the script, and Jeff Ward, our amazing writer, always gives us an incredible script. And then we do interviews at the same time, and they fit into the script, but they also generate new stories that weren't in the script. And then the script gets revised many, many times. And then we sit with the script and say, what should we look at? What, should we, what music should we play? And our editors do a lot of that sort of roughing out. And then Ken and I will work with the editors to say, you know, we didn't like that picture of the cocktail glass. We want a different one, or that flapper's not funny enough, or... You know, this we have a better shot of a raid where they're pouring up the stuff and you can really see it better. So we have to know the material as well as the editors do. Now, part one of Prohibition, which premieres Sunday night, the title of the segment is A Nation of Drunkards. Uh, it begins with these lush shots of what we presume to be Litchfield, Connecticut, in the dead of winter. I'm wondering if it's true. Uh, <laughs> do you really want to know? <laughs> yes, I do. I mean, what role does live action play in your films? And you know, are you cheating to to cre create the perfect image for your story? Yes. Yeah, so we, the, the film opens with a scene in Litchfield, Connecticut, where there's a minister going to see a parishioner whose husband has become so drunk that he can't function, and she's the wife is distraught. And we knew that would open the film, and we didn't have photographs of Litchfield, Connecticut in 1832 because photography had not been invented. And we decided to film uh, the only place we could think of where you could see a scene in New England that looked like 1832, and that is a beautiful historic museum, outdoor museum called Sturbridge Village. Oh, I've been there. I love that been place. Been there, too. So we were there at you know, dawn and dusk in the winter and got, I think, some beautiful cinematography that our cinematographer, Betty Squire, shot of the church and the little, you know, um, some of the buildings. And then we had them set up a table and chairs and a fire and put some whiskey on the table and we filmed that. So that's as close as we ever get to recreations. But we will take some poetic license. It's not actually Litchfield, but it is New England and it's not too far from Litchfield. It feels like Litchfield. Exactly. So much of what we're going through today harkens back to what we learn in your documentary Prohibition. What are the parallels you see between what's going on in Washington and also in our media with what happened about a century ago? We started the film really not thinking at all about parallels with today. We just wanted to find out what the story was of Prohibition. And the further we got into it, the more we kept on saying to ourselves, oh, my goodness, this seems very familiar. And I think on the political and cultural level, what we discovered was that Prohibition, yes, it's about gangsters and flappers and speakeasies, and that's a lot of fun, and we have all that in there. But what it's about on a deeper level and to us actually a more interesting level is it's sort of a culture war unfolding, probably the first culture war that we've had in the United States. What you had was a country that was changing dramatically, and it was very unsettling and sort of disturbing time for a lot of people. And there was really a group of, a major section of society that really thought the country was going in the wrong direction, and they wanted to kind of bring it back to where they thought it should be, the good old days where everything was perfect, and they were not willing to compromise. They felt that they had 
figured out the moral high ground, which was no alcohol, and that this was the answer to all the problems in society, the sort of the quick fix, and that because it was an absolute idea, there was no way that you could have a real conversation about what to do about it. It was all or nothing. And they were very, very astute as developing sort of a strategy for single-issue politics to get what they wanted brilliantly by allying themselves, uh, sort of alliances of convenience across many different uh, ideological lines. They had the NAACP and the Ku Klux Klan. They had the uh, industrial workers of the world and the, in and the industrial uh, magnates like Rockefeller and Carnegie all supporting prohibition. And so there was this kind of um, collective sense I don't know how to say it exactly. Like the priorities seemed to be one thing and there was a bandwagon. You had to get on it. You were either with us or you were against us. And a lot of it ended up having to do with fear of change. And the way that um, they convinced many people to go along with it was sort of playing up fear, fear of immigrants, fear of cities, fear of crime, fear of uh, change, just basically fear mongering. That was a big part of how it happened. And then in addition to that, it was smear campaigns. It was sort of politics of personal destruction. It was basically the ends justify the means. I mean, the, is that right? The ends justify the means. That was essentially that this, this is so important and it's, we, we know what's right for society that we will do anything to have it happen. That sounded kind of familiar to us, I have to say. Nothing like hindsight to guide us in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's eerie. I think what it really showed us is that history doesn't repeat itself, certainly, and society has evolved tremendously since then. But human nature, perhaps, is a constant. And so you see the same things recurring in different ways, in different contexts, but the same themes, the same impulses, the same ways of behaving collectively will always be with us. We are, uh, you know, obviously uh, had a sneak peek at this uh documentary and commend it to everybody who's listening here on Polyoptics uh, on POTUS Sirius XM 124. But uh, as you enjoy it, and, and I know you will, uh, think back for a second to this interview uh, with, with Lynn Novick so you understand that uh, the people behind the scenes, the, the cinematographers, the editors, this whole team of people in that you've pulled together and worked with for so many years represent the very best of of the business and we're real lucky to have had you come in and talk to us today oh thank you for having me josh that was a great treat to have a former white house chief of staff and such an accomplished filmmaker on one show i mean that's right so many people you and i are now uh on the sidelines watching the presidency the current presidency unfold and we're also uh in our on our sofas on sunday evening watching documentaries on pbs and and both of the process of running the West Wing and also putting together these incredible assemblages of history that Ken Burns and Lynn Novick do, uh, these are some of the best jobs there are. We, we were lucky enough to have a chance to work in the West Wing for a while, and just to, to get into Lynn Novick's process of putting together one of these documentaries, uh, it's a big thrill if, not, if you don't actually get to do it yourself. You're absolutely right, Josh. Uh, at POTUS, the, the, the goal every day is to bring unfiltered audio to our audience, and we do that, and we provide an insight and an appreciation for what's going on in Washington that you can't hear anywhere else, and yet right here on Polyoptics, channel 124 on POTUS, you're getting a chance to hear from the people who've actually done it, the people who are there every day making it happen, not the, comp not the commentators, not the chattering class, but really some insight in behind-the-curtain look at the way our government and our country and our media actually work. And I'm just excited about this show and uh, looking forward to what is a really robust calendar for us, Josh. We've got some amazing shows coming up as we start to put it into high gear in the 2012 uh, campaign cycle. Well, every week brings something new. I mean, we wouldn't have expected one week ago that Perry would would take the hit that he did for his debate performance. And we I might have minimized the importance of one moment in the national spotlight in a debate, but it's clearly had a profound impact on Governor Perry's campaign. And how the Republican field begins to evolve, maybe shake out, shake up. People like Herman Cain, people like Rick Santorum might actually get another breath of life if, in fact, Governor Christie doesn't get in this race. That's right. So stay tuned here on Polyoptics on POTUS. You're going to hear from some of these great names, perhaps even the author of the 999 plan. Josh, it was great to be with you this week. You too, Adam. See you next week on Polyoptics.
This is POTUS. Politics of the United States for the people of the United States. This is POTUS. Sirius XM 124.